Welcome to 35 West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and host of the 35 West podcast. Professional Mexican, but government. are we ready? I don't think. Reform trends in Argentina, right. and that's what no happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to Thirty Five West. I'm Ryan Berg, director of the Americas program at CSIS and the co-host of the Thirty Five West podcast. On Sunday, February fourth, Salvadorans headed to the polls to cast their votes in what virtually all analysts predicted would yield a landslide victory for incumbent president Nayib Bukele. However, official confirmation of Bukele's victory was interrupted as the president declared the opposition was, quote, pulverized before the final transmission of the votes had been completed and announced by the Supreme Electoral Tribunal. This move, combined with widespread allegations of mishandling of votes, led the Supreme Electoral Tribunal to demand a recount, with the opposition mulling a request to redo the elections in March and touched off a brief constitutional crisis. While this appears to have been resolved in Bukele's favor, with the tribunal officially announcing his victory with some 83% of the vote, this incident is but the latest in a steady march of democratic backsliding in El Salvador, one where Bukele has shown contempt for any effort to check his executive authority. With his mandate renewed for another five years, the United States and international community must begin to think through how to push back against the most concerning facets of Bukele's backsliding. To cover a spate of elections in Latin America and the Caribbean, 35 West podcast is hosting a special series of conversations, El Rumbo Democrático, or The Democratic Path, to furnish listeners with insights into the region's most important elections. Today, we are honored to be joined by Noah Bullock, executive director of Cristosal, a leading human rights organization which has been closely tracking the infringements upon civil and political rights under the Bukele administration. In this episode, we will discuss the results of the election, what to expect from a Bukele 2.0 government, and the implications of this vote for the region at large. Thank you very much for joining us today, Noah. Thank you, Ryan, for the invitation. Good to be here. Lots to talk about. It's hard to extricate the unprecedented popularity Bukele and his New Ideas party enjoy from the ongoing state of exception that has been made essentially a permanent state in El Salvador, a campaign which has yielded considerable gains in terms of reduced homicide rates but at a steep price in terms of human rights. Cristosal has been tracking human rights abuses under the state of exception since its onset. Would you mind providing our listeners with an update on how conditions under this regime have or have not changed over the past two years? Yeah, I, I think we have to understand it both philosophically from what it is as a policy and what it is legally. And in some ways, the easiest place to start is the law part. The state of exception was decreed by the Legislative Assembly as a state of emergency in which the you know, the Salvadoran legislature restricted certain fundamental freedoms, extended the amount of time people could be held in pretrial detention, restrictions of due process rights. And that's something that's, in some senses, established in the Constitution. You're allowed to declare emergencies as long as they're temporary. The response is proportionate to the, the emergency that you're dealing with. And there's a restriction about the type of rights that can be restricted. The policy has evolved. Legally, they've also combined reforms to the penal code uh, that are more permanent. And those are oriented to reducing the due process rights to people who are accused of two crimes, terrorism and illicit association. So from a law standpoint, the change in the state of exception has been from its origin as an emergency decree it has now become, in some ways, a permanent measure codified in a series of legal reforms 
And sort of the monthly declarations of emergencies are really just ceremony. The state of exception from a legal standpoint is no longer an exception, it's the new norm. From a policy standpoint, I think it's important to remember where it comes from. The Bugeli administration was notably able to reduce homicide rates really from the first day of their, of their administration. And most of the evidence, including the indictment presented by the Eastern District of New York against the leadership of the Mara Salvatrucha, indicate that in the first three years of the Bukele administration, they were able to control homicide rates or the perception of homicide rates through alliances between the government and the gang leadership. And so the state of exception emerges as a sort of a series of tit-for-tat negotiations with the gangs that we would see periodically outbursts of violences. And the violence is the, the tool, the communication tool that the gangs negotiate with. And then there would be a return to sort of the stability. But in this case, in March of 2022, there was an outburst of violence and what seemed to be a rupture of that pattern of sort of reduction of violence and then a return to a normalcy. So I, I wanted to bring that to the discussion because the state of exception isn't like a, a deliberate policy that was developed over, over time. It was really improvised. It was a response to an outburst of violence that was a consequence of a longstanding alliance and negotiation between the Salvadoran government and the elites of the gangs. It hasn't fully evolved as like a more comprehensive security strategy. What really has fed it as a policy is its popularity. I think we remember hearing at the beginning of the state of exception that police were giving quotas and they wanted to capture 10,000 and then the population supported it. And so then it, they needed 20,000 people. So in some ways, it became a self-perpetuating cycle as a policy, a policy that's not written anywhere. It's not, there's no defined end game of it. It has its own life. I've spoken a lot of sort of about background, but it's important also to understand philosophically what the state of exception is. And as a human rights organization, we ascribe to a philosophy that the world is safer when rights and human dignity are protected. The human rights and the democratic form of governments are the bedrock of sustainable security. The state of exception says no. The state of exception is based on a philosophy that says that rights and the democratic form of government are obstacles to citizen security. And there's an underlying judicial philosophy called the derecho penal del enemigo, the penal law of the enemy. It's the unphilosophical underpinning of it. And that, that idea is that in a society, there are individuals or groups of people who are enemies of the society and therefore should not be protected by law. They shouldn't be subjected to rights. When you apply that, to the gangs, that seems like something that seems rational and applicable. But the problem is, is when you don't have safeguards about independent institutions, who decides who's an enemy of a society and who has rights and who doesn't becomes very fraught. And in the case of El Salvador, where power, the state of exception being in itself an extension of a process of democratic deterioration, the power to decide who is an enemy of society, who is a subject of rights is squarely in the executive. And so what we've seen through 23 months of the state of exception is that nearly 80,000 Salvadoran citizens have been rounded up without previous investigations, without judicial warrants. They've been essentially disappeared into prisons. And I use that word intentionally. The family members oftentimes don't know where their, their family members are held, if they're alive, if they're well. 
Then they are charged in mass trials between 60 and up to 600 people. We've seen the, the minister says eventually they want to group them into groups of 900 people on charges in which individual criminal acts don't have to be proven or attributed to individuals. Rather, they're belonging to a group. They are subjected in prison to systematic torture, which has produced the deaths of hundreds of people. And they face courts, the tribunals that were created specifically to convict them after the state of exception was, was declared. They are tried in absentee with very little possibility to exercise their defense in front of judges whose identities are unknown. And so if we just look at the what I've just described objectively, we're talking about uh, mass roundups of people who are then put into uh, mass concentrations of detention where they are tortured, where they suffer ill treatment, and then they face ad hoc secret tribunals where they are tried almost collectively, not individually. Remember that the president, the vice president of El Salvador, Felix Ulloa, described these mass trials and the collective prosecution of people as a judicial innovation. But from a human rights standpoint, this looks like a setback to some of the darkest episodes in human history. Going into the elections, it never seemed much in doubt that Bukele would not only win, but win by a landslide. Instead, most analysts, including us at CSIS, were focused on the composition of the legislature and the potential for a wholly one-party or effectively one-party state to be voted in in El Salvador. Bukele himself seemed quite proud of this fact. He stated, quote, it will be the first time in a country that just one party exists in a completely democratic system, close quote, adding that the opposition had been pulverized. But how democratic were the elections, Noah? And given the state of exception that you've just described comprehensively, how did the ongoing state of exception and its constraints on civil and political rights impair the ability for El Salvador to conduct truly free and fair elections? Sometimes it's worthwhile listening and believing people when they tell you what they're thinking and doing. Our poli-sci majors here who are, who are following your podcast can do the assessment of whether the concept of a single-party state and a full democracy are compatible at all. I think the idea of a democracy is the existence of minorities, the protection of their rights to be represented and participate in the political life of a country. And in short, this electoral process is not, as you said, a competition between two equals for executive power. Uh, really, it's a referendum about whether minorities in El Salvador will have the right to representation and participation in the political process or not. That's the single party state. When the president talks about pulverizing the opposition, I think that the, there's a great historical irony in there. If we assess what he would call los viejos de siempre, the old political guard that he's trying to destroy. One of their political sins was the idea that sooner or later, one ideological tribe or the other would overcome and there would be a final victory, whether it's the left or whether it's the right. And in a democracy, in reality, nobody gets a final victory. There's an alternation of power. There's a building of consensus. There's negotiation. There's concession. I think that the using the use of the word pulverizing opposition is also indicative of the type of political regime that has been established and will be continued to be consolidated, one in which there is one person determining the decisions and very little tolerance for political debate or nuance. And I think that if we look at uh, the electoral process or the process running up to the day of the elections, I think when we talked to you and I a few weeks ago in Washington, I said to you that the election outcome is all but known. 
Uh, what we don't understand necessarily will be the election process. People who run elections say that it should be in reverse, right? That the only thing that should be unknown is the outcome. But in this case, the process itself was dictated by the president and his party. The president, as he governs normally, set the rules for the electoral process outside of the framework of the law. He, his candidacy himself, is wildly illegal. Establishing six articles of the Constitution, punishable with the revoking of his citizenship. If that's a kind of a joke I like to make, that I'm actually more of a citizen now than the president, according to the Constitution. But the point is, is that this has not been an electoral process that's been subjected to rule of law. It's one in which the president and his party has determined the rules, and that has created huge disadvantage in, in order to participate equally in the electoral process. And as you mentioned, that's not only because they intentionally restricted the resources that were allotted to that are allotted by law to opposition parties uh, to do campaigns, to hire or, or to move volunteers to staff voting booths, or some of the other things that they did to sort of restrict the the access to resources and to even do campaigns. But the state of exception itself is is sort of a backdrop to all of the societal life in El Salvador with the state of exception. I think it's common. I think it would be actually one of the few things that is debated in El Salvador is that the government can do whatever it wants to whoever it wants. And there's no institution that can intervene and protect. And so to participate as a political opposition party is to risk being categorized in that group of people that is opposition or enemies of the regime. And that means to risk suffering reprisals. Whether you're considering participating in the election as a donor from the business community, whether you're thinking of being a candidate yourself in a political opposition party, whether you're thinking of just liking something on social media from a political opposition party, all those things in El Salvador have consequences. And I think that that undermines the free and fairness of the electoral process. And then the day of the elections and subsequently we can talk more in depth about what happened but they continue that pattern. The sub, the president ultimately substitutes the institutions and authorities of the institutions of the state. Let's talk about the day of the election, because there are some questions about that. Bukele's decision to preempt the Supreme Electoral Tribunal's announcement seems quite puzzling in particular. Why, in your opinion, would Bukele risk a constitutional crisis and give further ammunition to the opposition and frankly, some in the international community as well, for a result that, as we've discussed, seemed all but a foregone conclusion. I guess I forgot to finish my idea when I was answering your last question, but what, what I said to you a few weeks ago in Washington is that, uh, that for me, the day of the elections was really going to be more like a wake in which we would see the body of a democracy that died weeks earlier, or months earlier, or, or in a slow process. And then having watched the elections unfold, I realized that democracy died or at least electoral democracy is dying as a consequence of a million scratches. The, the, the electoral democracy is bleeding to death as a consequence of a million scratches in which no standards apply at all to the president. And so, and what I'm saying is, even before this election, a new political regime that's de facto was already installed in the country. This is not, I think, for at least the last two years in El Salvador, the president has acted outside the constitutional framework. And so I think it would be difficult to say that the president risked a constitutional crisis when the constitution was already in the casket. And so what he was doing was standard setting. He did two illegal acts. We could call those scratches, again, that would like bled the electoral body to death. 
But one was doing an exit poll. In El Salvador, it's illegal to do that. And I think that's one of the differences in context. There's a weaker institutionality in El Salvador. So the electoral tribunal is supposed to be the one that measures the outcome of elections, not exit polls. But he did his own. He hired his own. He paid for it. And then he made a statement before the electoral tribunal could say anything about the results in which he gave the results of that at that poll. Those are two illegal actions that he did. But what he was doing is saying, this is the outcome I expect. And with the weakness of the institutionality of the country, it's hard to imagine the electoral tribunal being able to say Bukele was wrong. And they have demonstrated their complicity, their weakness, their incompetence, their serviciality to the president throughout this entire process. The president got out ahead of the curve and said what the electoral outcomes were. And now what we see happening is his party uh, imposing authority over the, the final count of the vote to be able to produce the outcome that he said. And he said he celebrated the installation of a single party state in which his party controls all but two of the congressional seats. Let's move to what happens in the post-election period. Now with the election behind him, it seems Bukele will only double down on the policies which earned him condemnation from democracy and human rights NGOs throughout his first term in office. With his security goals seemingly achieved, the test for a second Bukele administration will be whether he can deliver on economic and development priorities. One thing that we talked about when we met a couple of weeks ago in Washington was just how many people have fallen either into poverty or extreme poverty during Bukele's first term, as well as the failed gambit around the cryptocurrency Bitcoin, and lastly, clashes with the International Monetary Fund. What is the economic outlook for El Salvador in Bukele 2.0? Again, I, I think we should believe what they say. The vice president the day of the election and the president himself in his speech from the balcony of the National Palace said that the journalists, political opposition, NGOs, international organizations are part of that enemy group that in this new political regime will not have space. So I, I think that's got to be part of how we imagine the new regime or this regime going forward. And from an economic standpoint, uh, the intolerance for debate, for proposal, for dialogue, for participation from diverse sectors, for consensus building has a direct impact in the way they manage the economy. Like you alluded to, one of the most emblematic cases was uh, on a whim of the president uh, on a Sunday in English in Miami, he said that Bitcoin would be the national currency. And by Wednesday, his legislator approves a law that's three pages long, and they spend hundreds of millions of dollars from the national treasury to implement it. No debate. Nobody at that time even knew what Bitcoin was. And to date, nobody knows what the, what the benefit has been to anybody. Right? That's just an example of a type of decision-making process. But El Salvador um, or, or the Bukele administration has been notably absent of real policy, and especially on social policy and economic policy. What they have done specifically is cut education funding, cut some of the assistance programs for people living in extreme poverty that were in place. They've lent money from the pension system in order to pay the sovereign debt, which was celebrated by people who, who got paid, but, but for Salvadorans who can't access their pensions for, for right now, that's a huge hit. And so in the first period of the, the, the first five years of Bukele's governance, extreme poverty has doubled when the national poverty rate has increased for the first time in two decades after substantial drops. Those that can be related to macro conditions, but I think also the lack of a clear policy response to mitigate them 
that's a responsibility that falls squarely on the on the president and his administration. And there's another piece of data that's specifically concerning, and that is that the World Food Program estimates that over a million Salvadorans are at risk of extreme hunger, and that 50% of the population, 30% is more or less is in poverty, and then 50% is in vulnerability of falling into poverty. So any given upheaval, any given crisis could have a tremendous impact in the Salvadoran economic life. And this happening in a, in a backdrop where foreign investment is in the red in El Salvador. The economic growth, even compared to the other countries in the region, is significantly lower. And so I think one of the things, again, trying to pander to the poli-sci crowd, but rule of law and economics are interconnected. This is a theory that, that liberal people have been proposing for a long time. But why would you risk investing in El Salvador? Why would you bring your business to the country if stability and security depended on the whim of one person? You know, at the beginning, if you're doing short things, if you're doing like a Miss Universe conference or you're doing, you're bringing concerts into the country or things like that, it's easy. It's actually efficient to make a deal with just one guy. But if you're talking about truly investing in the country in a way that would have a macroeconomic impact, I think rule of law and the absence of rule of law, specifically in El Salvador, is a deterrent for economic growth. Bukele's victory points to a very concerning trend we've been looking at at CSIS in the region, wherein enthusiasm for democracy appears to be waning. Leaders who promise quick gains in the security space for constraints on civil liberties appear to be rewarded at the ballot box. I want to talk about the United States and its position on Bukele. Secretary Blinken congratulated Bukele on the day of the election. Policymakers in Washington seem to have pivoted on Bukele. How might policymakers in Washington rethink their strategy with engaging the Salvadoran government, but also the opposition and civil society following the re-election? I'd like to intro to your question, this idea that what I'm, when I'm, I, I like to think that when I'm describing El Salvador, listeners are hearing a multitude of contexts around the world. This isn't a phenomenon that's unique to a tiny country in the corner of Central America. This tension between you know, liberal democracy and these promises of illiberalism to guarantee stability and security for people who haven't known it. And that's a reality. And in response to that, I, I would just say that it's also important to remember since Central America and El Salvador that democracy is less than 30 years old. And one of the things that I might agree with the president on is in some ways, Salvadorans, he says they've never known democracy. I would say that they're yet to know the true benefits of the power of a democratic state to transform lives and, and, and create deeper freedoms. But in terms of the response from the United States, what I understand about the, the strategy with Bukele is that he's popular and the popularity is a source of his legitimacy. And it's, that's an important, it's important to make that distinction because, you know, especially in his first election, he was given a popular mandate. And, and then with the way that he governed once he had power, especially a supermajority, is that he lost a source of institutional legitimacy. He didn't govern within the laws of the country. And so he depends so much on his popularity as a source of legitimacy for his governance because of his tendency to govern as a state, a permanent state of exception. And so the U.S., I think, makes a difficult relationship with the United States because it's somebody who, by its nature, operates in anti-democratic, corrupt, and to be honest, very brutal ways as an autocratic regime or as an electoral authoritarian system, uh, which is 
in a contradiction to what the United States says it stands for in the region, promoting the fight against corruption and the strengthening of democratic governance. Uh, yet he has this popular legitimacy. And I think that what they, this, the United States has decided is that they're not going to try and confront him publicly, that they want to have a constructive private relationship in which they can find ways to support the aims of prosperity and, and development in the country while trying to mitigate those kind of uh, anti-democratic and, and corrupt and human rights violating practices that seem so inherent to his DNA. So the problem is, is that the United States has made a decision that their strategy is not public diplomacy, rather a quiet bilateral relationship in which they hope to be able to extract concessions. And so that would mean, you know, hopefully that they're negotiating everything. And in a good, in a good light, that would mean, for example, Bukele said, look, I'm going to announce I'm the victor and I'm going to release my poll results and I want you to congratulate me before the TSE has results. And, and, and then the United States would then say, okay, we'll do that. But then you need to guarantee uh, that you'll support the TSE results when they come out and that you'll help guarantee, you know, a transparent vote counting system. That would be like, I would imagine how a constructive relationship would play out. But the problem that we see in that is, is that the United States seems to believe that they can sort of not have a public diplomacy component. The United States in Central America, when it communicates, it sends a message. And when it doesn't communicate, it sends a message. The omission to say something de facto validates and legitimizes. And so there's this very difficult line to, to try and draw between trying to have a constructive relationship to mitigate the worst consequences and to promote development in the country and legitimizing a regime that could potentially govern autocratically for decades. And from a standpoint of someone who lives there, who's a citizen of El Salvador, the only thing protecting me and my family from the abuses of an authoritarian state is the bilateral relationship that the United States is able to have with them is not sufficient to protect freedoms I think that that's a, the United States even might have a credibility problem as a lasting partner on that, on that goal. And I think that there's another point is that when the United States stops helping or participating in the standard setting through public communications, they cede standards to somebody who actively sets them. In Central America, the democratic standards are not being set by the democratic charter. It's being set by Managua, by Bukele. And so I think that you see the ability to communicate to the Central American population about standards, about expectations, but also in going quiet, you see or you cease to support future democratic champions who can be your allies to restore democracy at some point. I don't think anybody in civil society in El Salvador, I'm not, I think journalists, I don't, I think judges who might want to become more independent, attorney generals who might want to become more independent think that at this point the United States, if they were to make ethical choices, if they were to decide to be democratic champions, they would have the full backing of the United States. Because the message is, is that we are a constructive partner of this government and we congratulate them in their illegal electoral victory. And so you basically say to the future democratic champions that you're on your own. No, I have one final question for you, and it's an observation we often hear about in this same breath about the U.S. pivot, which is Bukele's courting of China as a potential counterweight to the United States. Give us your quick opinion on how close that relationship is, the Bukele-Beijing partnership, 
And what risks might this nexus pose for any future backsliding or autocratic consolidation in El Salvador? So the, the China relationship is there's a there's a comical anecdote that might help us to assess this. And remember when he was first elected, he went to the Heritage Foundation. He said that when we look at the experience in Africa and around the world, partnering with China is not good for countries who are striving to develop. And then I think like literally months later, he was in China getting an honorary doctorate from a Chinese university. Bukele is not looking for strategic alignment with a world power. He's pragmatic. He's looking for ways in which he can play China against the United States so that nobody bothers him as he continues to consolidate power and try to generate benefits for his group that governs around with him. As you, If the U.S. is assessing a China threat in El Salvador, it shouldn't be taken with such gravity that, that Bukele might someday become a loyal pawn of the Chinese. I don't think that's in him. The other part, too, is that it's in terms of like a pivot to China, the Salvadoran population has deep political, cultural ties to the United States. Uh, nobody in El Salvador looks to China as a model. Nobody immigrates to China in hopes for a better life. The Salvadoran there's a third of the Salvadoran population lives in the United States, votes for presidents in El Salvador from the United States now. I do think that the United States needs to figure out how to leverage those deep cultural, social, economic ties between the populations to try and promote some of the goals of democracy and combating corruption and protecting rights. And I think that that goes back to what we were talking about in the previous question, is that in what ways is the United States communicating those values so that the Salvadoran population might see themselves as more aligned to a worldview that's projected from American power rather than Chinese power? Noah, is there something we didn't cover in this podcast episode? Anything else that you would like to highlight or add? I think about El Salvador and why it matters to other people. It's a small country. There's a phrase from Ignacio Ayacuría, who was the rector of the, the Central American University, and is one of the martyrs. He was killed by the Salvadoran armed forces in 1989. And he had a phrase, he said, that the third world is to the first world an inverted mirror in which the first world sees a disfigured image of itself. And so I think that some of the, the, the context we've been talking about today in El Salvador speaks to a broader phenomenon in the world in which we're interconnected with it. Indifference to the million scratches and attacks on democratic norms in El Salvador is an indifference to the idea of a world that's based on rules and standards that were the foundations of peace you know, following the Second World War. And so I, I think that that's one of the things that, I need, that needs to be talked about more openly, especially in foreign policy. There's pragmatism in the case of Bukele, against a very popular politician, but there also needs to be enforcement of standards. We can't pretend that Bukele will be the exception to history. What we know when power is concentrated in the hands of one person, what we know about state violence, for example, in the state of exception, is that those things don't produce lasting peace. We might make pragmatic trade-offs right now for whatever reason, but sooner or later we have to pay that bill. And so I guess I just wanted, I think that's some of the, the, the thing that we, I wanted to bring up today is that history uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Bukele is popular, but I've seen this story in history before, and it doesn't end well. 
And so I think those of us who defend rights, who believe in democracy, the, the form of governance, but we need to rely on history as we try and chart our, our pathway here in a world in which, you know, I think this year 70 billion people will vote. And there's a chance that they might also choose autocratic regimes. And what will world peace look like when the majority of countries are not democracies? Noah Bullock, Executive Director of Cristosal, thanks for joining us on 35 West. We appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Ryan. Good to have you. For you, thank you for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 35 West.